This presentation was recorded at the Western Fellowship Teachers Institute. For more information about the Institute, call 541-999-7467 or email jolasmucker at gmail.com. That's J-O-L-A-S-M-U-C-K-E-R at gmail.com. Welcome everyone to this uh, little discussion about what motivates a child's behavior. I have some uh, handouts here still. Those of us who work with people, those of us who work with young children, we ought to be interested in what motivates their behavior. And that's what we're going to explore in the next 40 hours that we have together. You are tired this afternoon. <laughs> we have a 45-minute session this afternoon, a 45-minute session tomorrow afternoon. Today what I want to do basically is consider what we as teachers can do to affect students' behavior, to motivate their behavior. And then tomorrow I'd like to go into more of a, a psychological study of what happens, what is the basic framework of every one of us here that motivates us to act the way we do. Now, I'm not much of a psychologist, I'm not one at all really, but it was exciting and interesting for me to study this subject myself and I hope to communicate that to you. Day three is not necessarily part of this series as I understand, but it does have the same word in the title, classroom motivation. And in that day, I plan more to think about how we can keep momentum in the classroom, uh, more uh, along those lines. All right, so uh, on, the, on the handout I gave you, I have these blanks, and that's not to dumb you down at all. It's just I'd like you to stay, stay um, aware of what's going on. You can fill that in, and maybe you can guess at it before we get there. I'd like to start out by considering what three overarching behaviors is the school trying to motivate? What three overarching areas of behavior? Any, any, any guesses on that one that starts with an A, the simple one? Actions. Actions, okay. Academics is where I was headed with this. Academics. We want our students to learn new behaviors academically. And we're trying to motivate them in their learning. And that's what a lot of the classes here are emphasizing, academics. The next one is social relations. Social relations. And the last one is morals. It's not spelled with an E. Morals simply means a sense of right and wrong. I believe that as uh, educators and as schools, we need to be focusing on motivating behavior in all three areas. Academics, social relations, and morals. And for us to to uh, produce a generation without a basic framework in these three areas, I think is to fail our, our schools and to fail our students and to fail the coming generation. Those are the areas that we're trying to motivate their behavior in. And the question then is how do we do this? See, many of the, many, uh, many of the workshops relate to academics. I like to look at it more um, specifically and primarily from the morals um, standpoint um, but of course morals I, I would think is, is the most important 
And one of the reasons that I'm not teaching a public school, probably not the largest reason, but one of the reasons I'm not teaching a public school is can you imagine trying to be in a, in a, in a situation where they pull out morality? And from there, you're supposed to teach social relations and academics. I think that would be very frustrating. In fact, I have a good friend that has taught in the public school for years. Um, he's, he's somewhere around 35 years now. And to him, he said that is one of the most frustrating things about his entire career. Because when the Bible was removed from public schools, we removed the, we removed the basis for morality. Yeah. And as we move along, I want to see how uh, if we have a sound moral premise, why then we have a foundation to build on for, quite obviously, social relations and on to academics that are set to follow. Of course, God gives academic abilities, and, but if our morality and our relationships are on good plane, well, then we're set to, to maximize learning potential. I don't want this discussion to be um, esoteric or impractical. I'm concerned that what we talk about here today can actually be implemented, so I don't want to go too far from where the rubber meets the road. So I welcome your input. It seems like whenever we have open discussion workshops, then things get quite practical. That's good. I believe together we possess a good bit of usable knowledge here in this room, and we can uh, together think about these things. I, I really don't feel the most qualified to conduct a study of this nature. Probably the only reason I'm standing here rather than some of you is that I probably spent a little more time in preparation. I'm kind of clinging onto that little thread of hope that uh, maybe that is an advantage. But I do want your contribution. Now let's go to those questions related to the scope of this study. Today we're going to focus on the first two, and we want to answer those rather directly. Tomorrow we're going to move on down the list to three and beyond. Um, and we won't answer those so much directly tomorrow as indirectly. But these are some of the questions that were going through my mind. How do people develop from helpless, self-serving children? to self-motivated, self-disciplined adults. And second for today is, can methods of administration of authority aid and or detract in the moral development of children? Why? So I'd like to uh, just move on to right to question one and answer and work at answering that directly. How do people develop from helpless, self-serving children to self-motivated, self-disciplined adults? I believe school is a place where men and women are being born, and we want to encourage that process. Well, first of all, by training, by training. There's plenty of space here if you want to jot down the four ideas I'm going to suggest about training. I like to use Proverbs 29:15. The rod and reproof give what word, W? The rod? Wisdom. Wisdom. Thank you. But a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. Training is how people develop from helpless, self-serving children to self-motivated, self-disciplined adults. Training. Now, there's four things suggested by that verse I want to highlight. First, that we, that we are not innately good. We are not innately good. Wisdom needs to be given. And this flies into the face of much psychology today. Um, we're not innately good. Wisdom needs to be imparted. Training. Second thing is that poor and embarrassing results come from neglecting to train. Bringeth his mother to shame. Right? Third thing suggested by uh, this verse, Proverbs 29, 15, is that we need to be quite proactive about this. Rods. 
you know, they need some motivation to really make them work. And the fourth thing this verse suggests is that the popular thought of the day isn't the right way. Um, popular thought of the day, as we suggested earlier, is that children are innately good, and all we have to do is give them the correct environment, and that goodness will just ooze out. Well, I've seen a lot of things ooze other than goodness coming out of children when left to, their, when left to themselves. And that's only uh, one of the twisted philosophies of the day. Um, perhaps you've read a Dr. Spock where he was into some promoting this type of thing. It turns out that today we have a generation who had been who has been, as someone said, who has been spocked when they should have been spanked. And I think that's about uh, sums up the, the, the problem with not pro following Proverbs 29:15. Also, the second one here, how do people develop by process? By process. The parable of seed growing is found in Mark 4, 26 to 29. I like this uh, this uh, word construction. So the kingdom of God, as is a man, should cast seed into the ground and should sleep and rise night and day, and the seed should spring and grow up. He knoweth not how. For the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself. And this is the part that I really like. First the blade, then the ear. After that, the full corn in the ear. But when the fruit is brought forth, immediately he putteth in the sickle, because the harvest is come. Here not so long ago, our school was looking to make a school motto. The principal got the idea to make a little icon for the school. He did a good job of that, and then he wanted to put a little motto underneath it. I suggested this, and it didn't pass. That's okay. We had another good one suggested. First the blade, then the ear, then the full corn in the ear. Four things suggested by this. That it is a process. It's like planting seed. The seed, the blade, the ear, and then the corn in the ear. And the fact, second thing suggests is that takes work. Rise night and day, it says in there. It takes work to make this process happen. And you and I as educators and as people that are responsible for children, we need to rise to that work. Because if we don't do it, it's not going to get done. You see, that's just the way it is. Or it might get done by people who we're not personally comfortable with. The third thing it suggests is that while we look for sickle-worthy fruit, stages precede maturity. And we need to recognize those stages. Each one, each stage has its own type of perfection. I think it's possible for us to be looking for that full ripe apple, the full corn in the ear, and criticize anything less. And to do so is a mistake, and it brings frustration in the life of a child. Maybe you've even experienced that frustration where someone has, or one of your mentors or uh, was wanting perfection out of you prematurely, and that doesn't work. And the fourth thing this suggests is that to expect and hope for full ripened fruit, that corn in the ear, that is appropriate. Even though we don't expect it prematurely, to expect that to be forthcoming someday is appropriate. Uh, the particulars of this process we'll give further definition to. After I give the next one constant effort, we're just going to open it up just a little. And if you have any comment, um, we're welcoming that. And the third item that I have under question one is by constant effort. By constant effort. And you know the verse for precept must be upon precept. 
precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here little and there little. That speaks to me of constant effort. I have three suggestions here that this verse suggests. First is that morality growth is incremental. It's incremental. We don't understand it all. A child, we growing up and still growing up, don't understand the whole of morality. Um, it also suggests the amount of time that we have with a child as teachers now. One term, two terms, even three terms isn't going to be enough to span that whole process. It will not be sufficient to complete the job of all the littles that need to be fed into the life of a, of a, of a young child to grow them up into a mature man or woman fit for use in the kingdom of God. We teachers each take a brief turn at weaving the fabric of these children's lives, and we won't get it all done, so relax. You don't have to do it all. I don't have to do it all. But we do want to do some, and what we do do, we want to be effective and we want it to be right. And thirdly, that thing that we learn about how people develop is that it really is the work of a lifetime. It really is. Like our own experience of growing ourselves up into the likeness of Christ, this is the work of a lifetime. And if you're scared of big projects and you want to quickly get done with something and move on to something else, well, school teaching is probably not a job for you. It's a work of a lifetime. And we need to just be at peace with that. And we need to actually embrace that. If we're going to be effective in growing up people, now, before we move on to the next question, balance it out. Yes, Mr. Green. Uh, I don't have the one about line upon line. I'm not sure why I didn't get that one on there. That's, that's Isaiah somewhere, isn't it? That's uh, Mark 4, 26 to 29. What's the answer to number two, yes or no? First part of the question. It's yes. Can methods of administration of authority aid or detract in the moral development of children? Why, yes, they can. Yes, they can. Are you ready to go to that, or do you have further comment? Well, why is that? Well, because some methods are more effective than others. Maybe you're prepared to, maybe you could uh, share an incident from your own experience. Why is it that some method, what methods work and what methods should be avoided? We'll take time for four here, four foundational methods of administration that are more effective than others. And you will see as we move through these four how they make a somewhat of an integrated or an interrelated uh, package, the one logically need, leading to the next. But... Maybe you can think back in your experience. Is there a time when you know you needed help, but the method that was used was counterproductive? Or maybe you can think back to your own experience, how you know you needed help, and the method that was used was very productive. You prepared to get that personal? Authority is um, seem to imply that perhaps you can't encourage 
Um, but sometimes I do leave on it short. Honesty is great, just long as they also indicate that they have hope. Positive expectations. Good. All right. If you have something to insert as we go along, do so. Um, four foundational concepts administration administrative methods for motivating children the first one i have here is replace fear with trust replace fear with trust i should give credit to where credit is due these four come from a book entitled teach like your hair's on fire it's a secular book with somewhat of a secular title i suppose it's it's written from the perspective that we're here to educate with with the morals pulled out see um but this man, I would like to visit with him because he is definitely uh, very, he definitely has a, a, a strong moral compass. And I, I borrow these from this book. Replace fear with trust. Now there, are, there is fear on both sides, the teacher and the student. There is fear that, that can um, hinder in this process of motivating a child's behavior. And if you're operating, let's first of all talk about the teacher fear. Um, if you fear the students, if you fear that I'll look dumb, if you fear that your own candle of knowledge doesn't burn brightly enough perhaps, or you, you're fearing that your reputation is going to decline because you're a teacher, you're in a fishbowl, and the list continues. Fear of not being listened to, fear of not being liked, fear of losing control. If that's your motivating or if those are your motivating forces, I don't think it's going to pr pr uh, produce the correct behavior in students. Right? Um, let's just think of some of those directly. Fear that you'll look dumb. Right? Well, we have those three up there, academics, social relations, and morals. Where does fear that the teacher looks dumb, where does that fit in with the overarching goals of our school program? It, see, it really doesn't. Okay, that's one that does rise up in teachers however but it really doesn't enhance what we're trying to do at school see and i probably looked dumb up here i had some comments to that effect by my siblings i'm still <laughs> scarred but i'm trying to move on uh, just joking fear that your lack of knowledge will be exposed well, yes, we need to do our homework as teachers. But can we learn with our students? Is there anything wrong with that? No, there's a lot right about that, see? Um, but if you're afraid that some of your students are going to push you into a corner, and so you're always sort of angling yourselves to stay ahead of them, there's too many of them. It's only one of you. You're going to get shoved in the corner, right? Let's not be afraid to say, I don't know. See, we're talking about premises that the teacher works off of to, to help develop uh, student behavior that is acceptable. Focus on being well prepared and study enough to explain it to the students, not to showcase your knowledge. You see, show, showcasing your knowledge is not really uh, advancing the, the three overarching goals of the school endeavor. Fear about your reputation? Well, Again, am I teaching to spread my fame? Um, wrong job. 
If you want fame, if you want to spread your fame, go be a politician. Um, good teachers make decisions on what's best for advancing the goals of education and academics and social relations and morality. See, not by what will paint them to be a pretty teacher, right? And of course, trusting God with your fears. School teaching really isn't rocket science. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and of love and of a sound mind. God enables with power, with love, with logical thinking to get the job done for his glory. I think school teaching more than many other jobs that I've done, I have a strong sense of partnering with God. Um, that's because I'm working with his people. We're talking about replacing fear with trust. Let's move now to student fear. Do you want an environment this coming school year where your students fear you? No. Far too much has happened in this world at the wrong end of the rifle. Yes, fear does motivate, but it's a very poor way to motivate, to develop morality, to develop social and academic aptitude. In far too many classrooms, I believe that students have been manipulated with fear. Maybe fear of looking foolish, being humiliated, fear maybe of parents' displeasure, or fear of failing grades. There is more, more than one way to run a classroom. We can run it with the gentleness of the Good Shepherd, or we can run it with the screams of Adolf Hitler. Ken, both of them will get results. Right? Both of them were motivated. One father who was prone to ruling, ruling by fear one day had his son bring to him a baseball which he had gotten many years before that was signed by every player of the then current team of the Red Sox. I don't really have interest in these things, but for the sake of the illustration, hear me out. He brought this baseball that had the signatures on, and he asked his father, can I play with this, this ball? And the father said, no! That one has writing on it. We don't play with that one. Put it back right now. So the son dutifully went and put it back. A little while later, the son asked, Daddy, can I play with that ball? But it doesn't have any writing on it anymore because I licked it all off. Well, I think the father learned that day that to rule by fear and that commanding screaming probably isn't the most successful way to get it done. He should, have, he should have given direction to his son, but explained by sound thinking and by clear logical explanation. Otherwise, it will fall short of the desired results. And at that point, when all the writing was licked off the ball, I mean, the father can't get angry anymore except at himself, really. I mean, because he didn't explain it. All he did is shout it at him and put it back on the shelf. He was too concerned about his own interests and not concerned about explaining the logic behind it. I can berate my students for unfinished work. That's fear-based control, fear-based leadership. Or I can help them understand time management and help them make a system to manage their time. I can bark at my students for their messy workplaces. Or I can help them or assign a buddy to help them get it cleaned up. I can snort, I'll explain this one more time, one more time, okay, listen. Fist is clenched. Why? If you don't listen this time, you're not going to get it and you're going to fail. You know? 
Or we can sort of just like forget about the clock. And we can, in the pati with patience, we can continue to explain. We're talking about replacing fear with trust. What motivates student behavior? Um, I can ceremoniously crumple that failing paper and throw it into the trash can, which I've done. With the command, now do it over right this time. Or I can look over the paper with the student, help them fix it up. I can sneak around like a cat looking for a mouse to pounce on. We'll find one. Or I can trust my students to behave without having rules for every single thing. I can hold poor behavior in front of a student for the rest of the day. You listen so, and for the rest of the day now, I'm going to be just a little bit harsh with you. I'm going to be looking at you out of the corner of my eye, you know. Or I can forgive and move on, as our Lord does. Right? What motivates students' behavior? Try cultivating a, 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 a culture of trust in your classroom. Anything less, and you'll have a hole in the boat. That will require ceaseless bailing just to keep yourself floating through the year. You were hired to be a teacher. You weren't hired to bail water. Sometimes I talk directly about this issue with my students. And the beginning of the year is a, really a pretty good time to do this. It's kind of nice. I don't think I'm going to do it, but and I'm not going to require any of you to do it. But it's kind of nice to demonstrate this. You can have someone stand as stiff as a board and just have them fall backwards and be caught by two strong buddies back there. That's trust. See? As we just, keeping ourselves stiff, fall backwards and have them set up again. You, know, you can do that over and over again if you can trust those people behind you. That's the kind of trust I try to tell my students that I am putting in them. See, I'm putting that kind of trust in, let's just give, use the example in, in cheating. Every time, every paper, this is going to be your own work. And I'm not going to be looking you know, behind me all the time to be checking whether it is your own work. Um, but the other thing that I also tell them is suppose those fellows back there that are catching me as I'm falling back, suppose one of them decides to you know, go for lunch. Uh, or, or answer their cell phone, and I'm left to drop on the floor. How long would it take to rebuild the trust that I had before they broke the trust? See, take a long, long time. This is, it's a dangerous way to teach in some respects. It really is, because when a student cheats on you, it hurts really bad, right? But, you know, I think students respond to it in, in ways that are good. I'm ready to hear from you a little bit. What are you thinking? One thing to remember, if you're trying to rule by fear and force, it's, there's a whole, you say Adolf Hitler, he tried that, there's a whole lot more other people than there was of him. In the end, it didn't, it didn't work, and that's the same in the classroom. A whole lot more with them than you are. And um, if you try to motivate them by fear, that's you pushing them. And their motivation is, is, is you're, you're pushing them the whole way. 
that they're motivated because they love you and they love their studies and, and that, you know, they're carrying that. They're, they're motivated that way. You don't have to push them along. Yeah. You mentioned students loving their teachers. We need as teachers to really love their students. That's got to be the motivation. I think. Oftentimes, when people think of administration, they think of pushing them power. We can show this another way. That is service. dad said that I think he also said it was in the sixth grade about that level if not the sixth grade he said the most it was the most orderly year that he had because the teacher ruled by fear um, for example uh, he saw something going on one time and he was sitting down at his desk and he jumped up so fast he didn't have time to push back and tipped his whole teacher's desk over another time there were two boys that were standing around the corner whispering about the teacher he stood there eavesdropped until he had had his fill reached around, banged their heads together, and the ambulance actually had to come to school and pick them up. This was in public school um, 40, 50 years ago. Um, but it was the most, remember how I started it? The most well-ordered school year that my father ever experienced, at least when the cat was present. <laughs> the big cat. And yes, when there, I had a student this year that I completely trusted, and I was away for uh, school meetings, and I got a call from the sub, and it was devastating. He had cheated on an algebra test, and I, I still, of course, I still gave him the punishment that he had chosen, uh, that he had uh, he had chosen to uh, break the school rules, and I, I told him, I said, you know, I'm going to be looking now, in a way, I said our relationship changed. I'm going to have to be watching you now because I can't trust you any longer. But I said, I am very eager to get it back to that point. But he understood because we had talked about these things before. All right, ready to move on? The next one is be dependable. Another foundational method for effectively developing children is being dependable. Like I said, today we're talking about things that we as teachers need to be. We as teachers need to do in order to, to develop children to well-balanced, well-developed adults. 
We will not motivate proper student behavior if we ourselves are not dependable. Dependability in all these areas will affect um, a teacher's ability to motivate students. I'm just going to go across a few areas where teachers must focus on being dependable. Time consciousness. Time consciousness. Now I know we had already said in this class that there's some times when we have to ignore the clock. However, I was in one teacher's room as a student that his time consciousness was so deficient that after a time of fruitless, um, uh, fruitless appeals and, and hand-wringing by the board, finally the board one of the board members came in and they told us students that when the bell rings, you may go. If it's recess time, if it's the end of school, um, it finally woke him up, right? Uh, but the bell at the end of the period is not a signal for the students. The bell is a signal for the teacher. teacher. Some of you have read Harry Long. I'll read it. The bell at the end of the period is a signal for teachers notifying them that instructional time has come to an end. The bell is of no concern to the students. <laughs> the bell does not dismiss the class. The teacher dismisses the class. All right, that's good. Um, you know, that teacher lost his respect and his teaching career. Um, and that fixed that one specific problem, but it didn't fix the overarching issue. And he either quit or wasn't hired back. I don't know which. Another area of dependability is promises. All right. Here's a promise that I've heard a teacher make already. This is a hard unit in algebra, but here is my promise to you. I will be here by 7.30 every morning, and if you want to come early because you need help, I'll be here and I'll be available. That's the deal. All right. That's a promise. All right. Now, we just talked about dependability. You better be there. You better be there. One of my fellow teachers had made such a promise that no students were coming. He decided to go deer hunting. He got a deer. And a student came early that morning. <laughs> I got an earful from that student because that teacher broke this dependability contract. That's really what it was, this promise. Does that kind of situation make any difference in the way students behave at school? I think it does. Of course it does. If you tell the boys, tomorrow we're going to start the canoe project in art class, and you don't have the plywood yet, if it means you got to get up at 4 a.m. to get the plywood, you better get up at 4 a.m. to get the plywood. All right? That's how important dependability is when we're trying to develop children into adults. If you say, well, you're going to have your book reports graded for tomorrow, and then you don't, well, you've only insulted your own credibility, and you will see results in the student's behavior. You've broken off the leaves of the very plant that you're trying to grow up, I think. Another area we need to be dependable on is rewards. If you tell your students, this, is, this kind of relates to dependability also, but if you tell your students, new flowered pencils to every girl that says her Bible memory a week early, well, you ought to almost already have those flowered pencils in your desk drawer, or at least you ought to know where there will be a store where you can get them. They will be in stock, right? This made a deep impression on me as a child when I went, this was in Sunday school, the teacher had said that if we meet such and so uh, uh, benchmark in Bible memory, we're going to get uh, a page of stickers, right? And she held up these stickers, and I'm not really motivated by stickers. I never really was. 
But these were nice. I mean, they weren't just your ordinary sticker. He, yeah, it was a real, realistic horse. We had a beautiful horse. And I wanted those stickers. Well, that day, everybody else wanted it too. And that, that next Sunday, everybody met the benchmark. So she ceremoniously opened the pack of stickers and there was one page in. Just one page. She thought it was a whole bunch of them. But these were expensive stickers. So you know what she did? She went out and bought us each a page of stickers. Right? That had a definite part of the weaving of the fabrics of my adulthood. I'm not sure if I'm enough of a psychologist to tell you all the reasons why. Can you, can you have one on the tip of your tongue you want to share? Maybe it was a negative. Those things have a way of sticking with the person. But anyway, one time I made the mistake, and it, it was a bad one. But I'd said that if we, it was near the end of the school year, students are getting kind of restless, and I said, we'll go to the park. Not so far from our school, we have a park. There's beautiful waterfalls in. I said, we'll go to the park if we get done with science two weeks before school's over. But that means you're going to have to work, okay? You're not getting this for nothing. Well, they did. And then, dummy that I was I hope I learned the lesson <laughs> I said you know we really aren't far enough in history well we went to the park the students saw to it that we <laughs> see I <laughs> I was sort of beginning to suggest that we really ought to get a little further in history before we go to the park yet mm -mm. no right you know if, if we as teachers break our side of the contract here's the principle if we as teachers break our side of the contract you can be sure that it will be taken as a sign that the students have the liberty to break their side of the contract and things will go downhill. Right? That's just the way it works. These things are intuitively sensed at a very young age. I don't think they're able to, to, I don't think a student can necessarily collect this data or verbalize it the way we're doing here. But they know this stuff, right? as, the, as the park story demonstrated. Let's move on, follow the rules. We're talking about being dependable, follow the rules, closely related to promise keeping and rewards. But it does have this dimension that I want to um, bring to light. If, if, if you let the administration of the school rules slide, well, that whole set of rules then is up for revision by the students because they're the ones that kind of revised it in the first place and you didn't administrate by it. See? You're telling them that they're in control, right? So they might as well use that power to twist the teacher into a whole new set of conduct even while we have this established set of rules. See? And that, friends, does not make good disciples. It just doesn't. When, when, we, when we have rules established at school and then we don't administrate by those rules, I, somehow that rolls into the spiritual life in, in ways that I think probably make ministry tired. Um, it, it affects a student's 
development of morality. Um, we want to bring the right kind of fruit from school. So before you make a new rule, I think we need to think carefully about, about whether we want to really administrate this rule, what, are the, what will be the unintended consequences of this rule. Rules are pretty serious things. These aren't things I think we sling out real easily. Um, can you actually enforce the rule? For instance, I won't make a rule that um, there's no whispering in the girls' restroom. How am I going to enforce that? All right. I, I think that's a, you're just setting yourself up there to, to insult your whole rule package, right? But I do have this understanding. When there's three knocks on the girl's restroom door and it doesn't get quiet immediately, anybody that comes out the door receives the same undisclosed punishment, right? See, that works. That I can enforce, right? Um, it's amazing, really, how quickly a child's sense of justice develops. And students carry with them some unwritten rules, too, about social contracts. Um, students, children don't have to be very old before they squawk about something being unfair. They sit there and watch you day by day, hour by hour, week by week, and they pick up on these things. You all heard already of the concept of a teacher's pet. What's that couched in? That's couched in an unwritten um, sense of fairness and justice that a, the students are perceiving to be violated. Right? Our teachers need to understand something of these unwritten rules, too, to be able to have contented, happy students motivated towards acceptable academic, social relations, and morality. Um, it's just the way it works. then you need to live by the same rules too. If students, I don't know about your school, but some schools have a rule that students aren't allowed to have water bottles at their desk. Well, student can't have a water bottle at his desk. What about you having a water bottle at your desk? Uh, there may be some difference there. What about coffee? What about coffee and Oreos? <laughs> All right. um, think, think. Beware of creating rules um, that are going to uh, be difficult to enforce, be unfair, create teacher's pets, um, create a, a difference between you not living by the same rule and so on. Um, anything that you want to say about being dependable before we move on to the next? What if you can't? Not gonna work. <laughs> you're gonna have 
have to back down here a little bit or something. So I mean, hopefully the children have some kind of knowledge that you're human now. Or what do you suggest? What do you suggest, class? I humbly apologize. You know, just say, you know, folks, I'm sorry, but I missed it. Um, really, and I really appreciate all your good efforts, but I think maybe, folks, you understand that probably you were getting brownie points just a little bit too much. I mean, too much brownies, you know what happens? <laughs> 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 um, I did once have a student tell me that um, I was talking about how imperfect I was or something, and he informed me that it would be, if you had perfect students, maybe you could be a perfect teacher, but since the students aren't perfect. <laughs> that was sweet of him, wasn't it? <laughs> let's move on thank you for this administrate logical discipline administrate logical discipline discipline must be logical and fair what is logical and fair I think we all agree with that statement discipline must be logical and fair I'm going to give three um, qualifiers for discipline that makes it logical and fair proportional to the transgression connected to the transgression, proportionate to, connected to, and affecting the transgressor. Now, for example, if there was a lack of participation on the uh, playground by a student or two, to suspend their recess for a whole week is not proportional to the transgression, unless it was, you know, suspend or, or suppose we say well now we're not going to allow conversation at lunch because you guys weren't playing out there that's not connected to the transgression right or suppose we say everybody's going to skip recess because you two weren't playing well that's not affecting the transgression so for our discipline to be logical and fair it must be, be proportional to the transgression connected to the transgression and affecting the transgressor I'm afraid that sometimes the troubles that we have or hear about at schools relate a lot to this thing right here. Um, I'm not even sure about calling it classroom discipline. Harry Wong says it ought to be called classroom management. Running a classroom is almost more like managing a grocery store than, well, you don't discipline a grocery store. Think about it. Right. And the last blank yet, be an excellent role model. Be an excellent role model. And all I can do here is appeal to your memory and the time remaining. Did you have any of those in your life? Did it affect, did it motivate your behavior? It did mine. And I owe a wealth of, I have a debt to those people, to my school teachers. You are being watched. You are a role model. The Lord bless you in that. Thank you, and you're excused. For more free resources that support teaching and learning, visit the docforlearning.org.